Friends and comrades, this is the Highlands Bunker Podcast. We're in the shadow of Rockford Tower, behind enemy lines, in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast. Super producer Carl is on the controls remotely. Uh, today, our great Uncle Joe will be inaugurated the 46th President of the United States, and I don't think there's anyone better to discuss this with than our guest today. The fake news journal, also known as DelawareOnline.com, would have you believe that the most famous Delaware native is Aubrey Plaza. This is gaslighting clickbait, folks, and it's very sad. I'm happy to welcome the true holder of the title, the most famous native from the home of tax-free shopping. He is the Washington Post political reporter, proprietor of the trailer newsletter, and author of the definitive history of prog rock called The Show That Never Ends, Dave Weigel. Hello, Dave. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And I think, I think the president will be more famous than me, but only during the four years when he's president. Dude, I will not stand for this yeah. Scranton erasure. This is Scranton, yeah. Pennsylvania erasure. <laughs> I'm not going to stand for that. I've yeah. always, we've always had a wink and a nod approach in Delaware, haven't we? Like he's ours. I mean, we, if if it helps him to say Scranton to get elected, sure. But he's ours. Yeah, we don't have much, so we definitely, we definitely cling like grim death to anything we can get. That's no question about that. Oh, before we get to um, to Biden and before we get to um, the Georgia stuff, which I'm very interested in your, your take on, we never really got a chance to unwind that because uh, we had a siege on the Capitol. Uh, what, what, what is your what is your take on it um, from a just a regular standpoint? Um, people are arguing over the word coup. I, I don't know if you have an opinion on that, but just um, sort of from a political standpoint, how are you feeling? What, what the hell happened? Well, I was at the Capitol. I didn't go inside. And the, the nice thing about being at a place like the Post with a, with a big reporting team is that every, you know people can pick up their own portfolio. There, so there were people who were inside. There were people who were in the crowd close to the, what was going to be happening. Uh, not that they had any, any, any warning, just, you know, positioning themselves in case something went wrong. And they had, you know, helmets and body, uh, body armor, things of that nature. I just came and I, I, I was trying to see what happened. Originally, I think I set out that day to just write about what happened hour by hour. Uh, not expect, and I knew that people had been talking about uh, attacking the Capitol, but not knowing that would actually happen. Um, so it was surreal. And the reason I've been comfortable saying attempted coup insurrection is because I talked to people and I, I kind of uploaded one of my interviews when I got there. Uh, the people I was talking to uh, universally believed that if they worked hard enough and if they did what the president was saying uh, and they stopped the the vote or they, they now, and there, there's a continuum here. There's everything from overturning the election completely to, uh, I don't know, shutting it down. So they have to de delay it 10 days uh, They really did want to disrupt the process and you can go mess with the language, but I, I'm the stickler for language uh, in me is getting annoyed whenever people say uh, we could be, uh, we could do get through this and have a peaceful transition to power. And my take is, well, that too late. <laughs> I mean, there wasn't a peaceful transition that we didn't have one because of January 6th. It's the first time the process was actually interrupted by anything but legal means. So but, yes, congratulations. I, I've, I'm comfortable calling it an attempted coup because people really did think they could overturn in some way the election. Yeah, I'm sort of with you. I, I'm my sticking point is yeah, it turned out 
sort of the way it turned out. However, you know, we had people roaming around the Capitol looking to potentially kidnap or or assault, um, you know, members maybe. Um, that certainly was an option. They found uh, other IEDs and bombs. I don't know if they was it proven that they were like they were live, like they could have they could have popped off or. Uh, I, as we're talking, we're finding stuff out, right? So there's a uh, the first outrage, and this is this is something you hear a lot of people who live in D.C. and I've, I've lived in D.C. since 2006. Uh, is it's unusual for police to have protesters come in and not arrest them on the spot. Uh, you know, just going around with zip ties, uh, handcuffs, arresting people, it's kind of understood. There's a lot of civil disobedience in the Capitol, and people kind of get ready to get arrested. So the first, I think, outrage you saw in D.C., especially among liberals, was, wait a second, <laughs> if this was a bunch of peaceful nuns protesting for health care or something, they would have got arrested. What happened? Uh, and instead, we've seen there's this kind of FBI um, dragnet that, no offense to the FBI, but might be one of the easiest criminal cases of all time, because... Uh, I don't know anyone who I couldn't see anyone who wasn't filming themselves at this thing. And you've got all this video of people explain what they're doing. Now, the people with actual bomb plots, so that takes more police work, but it's happening. But yeah, I, we're finding that people brought stuff in case there were, uh, well, I don't know why they brought it in case of violence to start violence, because what I've been doing since this event is taking the rhetoric very seriously. And when people say, let's overturn the government, let's storm the Capitol, I, I think, well, maybe they literally mean that. When people say uh, we need to be ready for a civil war, uh, well, they sound like they're getting ready for a civil war. Why not take that seriously? And I guess I was blasé about it uh, for a while because I've been hearing that for a long time. I've covered conservative activists longer than I've covered anything else. And I was finding people in 2009 who, you know, Obama won and uh, they thought that there would be a sort of immediate gun grab, immediate coup. Uh, I think it's not the kind of thing people have press releases about, but the, the, the gun sales that you see, the people loading up on weapons uh, after a big event like this, some of the people are getting them because they, they have fantasized about uh, maybe dark, maybe darkly, maybe they didn't want to fantasize about it. Maybe they really wanted to. They've, they've thought about what they would do if people came for them and tried to invade their homes. Uh, and the rhetoric, and not to monopolize the conversation, but the rhetoric of the, of the campaign kind of went there. I mean, the, the Trump campaign uh, had these was making these arguments on, in its advertising that if the Democrats won, uh, police were going to go away and your home was going to be invaded by Antifa. Uh, so this is a way I've been operating since January 6th is uh, if people say that they think there's going to be a civil war and their guns are going to get taken away and they need to kill people. I don't know why we wouldn't take them seriously. Yeah, my I and you mentioned the Capitol Police, you know, I've done activism at the Capitol and in the different uh, office Senate, uh, Senate and House office buildings. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you go there. If, if you're prepared to be arrested, you sort of know how it's going to go down. And really, regardless of how many people are there, the people that are going to get arrested get arrested. Um, sometimes, sometimes there's a little bit of pushing and shoving or some yelling or violence, but there's never any problem. So even taking the people seriously, I was – I guess I wasn't surprised that they were basically just able by, you know, they didn't by brute force and bludgeoning people to get into the Capitol. I, I did. I was a little surprised by that, actually, because of my experience down there. Yeah. So you've seen it, too. And we kind of know what the deal is like there. There are conservative and liberal protests uh, every every week in normal times. 
that are some version of, uh, of uh, some version of what this was designed to be, or by at least by the people who weren't planned to be violent. Uh, so, which is, let's get a critical mass of people. Let's uh, chant and scream. Let's lo uh, lobby our members of Congress if they don't listen to us. Let's kind of get in their faces and see and let them see how angry we are in our opinions. But let's not go any further than that. That's pretty common. So I've seen that a lot, and I saw on, on the right for quite a lot. I've seen pretty far right groups. I've seen. Uh, the Tea Party, Republican groups, Coke groups, a lot of people just have these rallies and um, and 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 show up and then leave. But what was different here was the president. I just was listening to his uh, remarks from his rally on the on the walk back to do this conversation. The president saying like we we're going to cheer for our guys. Other guys are not going to cheer as much. But on the premise that there's some way uh, to cancel these election results and keep me as president, uh, if a, if a state has voted fraudulently, and I'm kind of paraphrasing him because there, there weren't states with a lot of fraudulent votes, he just said there were, uh, then you don't need to behave the way you do in a normal election. So he was, he was laying the basis for years for saying, if I lose, I'm going to raise questions about it. Obviously, that got, that got exacerbated by um, all the pandemic rules, but not really, uh, because uh, every, every state, with the exception of basically Mississippi, made it easier to vote by mail. Every state was expanding early voting. And all in the White House's view, in the Trump view, well, only the seven states where he lost by the closest margin. Those are the ones. Those are the ones that that did something, did something untoward. Whereas yeah, the Ohio the, and yeah, sorry. No, I was just going to say the coherence of the the coherence of the argument is really not the point. It's sort of just baking in the conspiracies and you know taking it. It's it's so simple, really, because you see him just pick off the. The easiest thing. Oh, we're going to take the ones that uh, were close enough where we think we can do a legal thing here, or we'll take the ones where we have a friendly governor that we can pressure, or we, t you know, it's just it's it's pretty clear that that's really all it was, um, and I, I think the thing that's that that kind of tipped me off was, you know, I I look at all of this as a lot of theater, and. And a lot of like you just pick a team. It's not even really politics. It's just I like these guys because of their uh, aesthetic and or I like these guys because of their aesthetic. And that kind of like that broke down because the aesthetic <laughs> sort of uh, uh, personified itself and, 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 and acted in a way that, uh, you know, I think I think surprised a lot of people. And again, like I, I'm not surprised they were there acting that way or even tried to to storm the Capitol, but the fact that it was, it worked and, but for a, a plan that wasn't incoherent or just sort of made up, um, you know, it could have been much, much worse. Yeah. And, uh, this is dangerous stuff to talk about literally, cause you don't want to just jaw too much about how the Capitol works and how security works in Washington. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that, uh, there were security guards who both, by redirecting protesters from uh, from a from one chamber and from firing the shot, which killed one protester at the other, uh, you know, there were police that stopped people from entering and doing doing physical damage to politicians. Uh, and what you I'm taking this back to what people in DC are saying. So what you heard a lot was, wait a second. I mean, part of it, it it's the reason you have a, a standing uh, police presence at all, whether it's your local, t uh, your local cops or your U.S. military, uh, partly to use it, partly so that people don't do something stupid and, and try to hurt you, right? Uh, and so 
it's very well known that the, the Capitol Police is an, enormous. It's bigger than a lot of cities, and all, all, just a just to watch this one area with uh, you know the Capitol itself and six office buildings, uh, thousands of thousands of people, uh, and has a reputation for just letting nothing through. And it doesn't have that reputation anymore. I mean, it's 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 uh, not the same thing. But you know, bodyguards usually don't get hired uh, back if somebody gets hurt when they're body when they're when they're guarding them, right? So. Yeah. Uh, that is a question that I, that's the reason why living in DC since then has been especially surreal because uh, you've got a, a gigantic military presence, uh, the national guard, et cetera, coming in um, to, to harden a city, uh, which looks like a police state. Uh, you know, it, it, we know why it is here, but we've, we've got this level of security that we're not used to because we already, as far as we knew, had this Capitol police force that stopped us. If it turns out people think that they can, uh, attack the Capitol, if they said, okay, well, those guys got in and circled around and raised their hands, but we're going to go overthrow the government. Um, they now, that looks a lot more doable than it did before January 6th, right? Uh, people could get their schematics, their blueprints and everything. But as far as they knew, there'd at least be a police presence stopping if they tried to overwhelm them. And um, that strategy, you know, if somebody were to try it with different intentions, I think it's, it's it looks a lot more promising to the people who want to do us harm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I certainly, just from my standpoint and the fact I've been there and, and done, you know, uh, advocacy and activism and stuff, I certainly don't want to see people mowed down in the street. Uh, and I, you know, and and having any kind of sort of military presence around is is uh, is scary. I hope that I know, you know, initially there was some talk about using this to scale up the security state. Uh, even more but I don't know I mean I think to do that everybody has to agree and there's still you know there's still a big pocket of Republican Congress people that really are just kind of blowing it off trying to do that move um, so you know I, I maybe we don't have to worry about uh, that so much I, I don't know I don't know what the appetite is for like a Patriot Act 2.0 I, I hope it's very I hope it's very low yeah I mean that's actually something I've been I've been writing about in the last couple of days uh, is I, I talked to you know, the people who have influence on this or everyone that's going to staff the security apparatus for Joe Biden, that's, you know, from the attorney general to the FBI, et cetera, uh, to, to Congress. And so I, I was talking to Democrats in Congress uh, and I sought out people. I, I was looking for, if you're a Democrat in Congress who referred to what happened as domestic terrorism, I was asking, uh, okay, so wh what's your next step? You know, what do you, if it's domestic terrorism, what are you going to do? Um, and what I did here, so there's, there's an, there is legislation the house passed last year called the, just the, Domestic Terrorism uh, Prevention Act, uh, which would all if you and I, I read it twice, but I didn't miss anything. It would create a new uh, position in a lot of field offices that's going after domestic terrorism specifically. And the idea is, uh, it's 2021, or in that case, it was 2020 when it passed. Uh, the threat, no, we have a home Department of Home Security that's dealing with uh, foreign threats. Uh, I'll, we have our battle plans against terrorists, against Al-Qaeda, et cetera. But we have not been doing diligence to right-wing domestic terrorists in this country. And they want to pass that. But when I was pushing further, or is there anything else you want? Is there any pass? I did hear uh, every Democrat I talked to, and this was not all, all of them, but everyone I, everyone I was focused on, I didn't hear anybody say, and then also we need this other thing to crack down. I did hear some people say, look, you, wanna, you don't want to build a government that you wouldn't hand over to your enemy. Uh, saying, you know, what kind of powers do you want to create uh, with the possibility that 
the next president uses those powers to say, okay, well, uh, Black Lives Matter is a terrorist organization now, so we're gonna go, we're gonna go arrest you guys. Um, so they have that very much in mind. I think the attitude on the left uh, among Democrats is, is let's pass this, let's let's uh, make this new DOJ that's taking over in about a week um, focused on this instead of whatever the heck it was focused on before, you know, and, and the Obama administration, sorry, the Biden administration said it's going to decriminalize marijuana. It's going to probably deprioritize some stuff and focus more on going after this. But it's, it's a good question to be vigilant about because, you know, what gets inserted at the last minute? What kind of power gets inserted? And people are talking a little bit less about uh, laws to prosecute people for, for action or investigate their communications. They already have that. The, the question is, do they, what kind of censorship or, or monitoring of media or, uh, allowances for social media to shut people down, close their accounts. What's happening there? I mean, that's actually what Demo- what Republicans, I should say, are most worried about rather than a new terror law. Yeah, and I'm I'm not so so worried about it. I, I know some people get up in arms about um, social media and, and, and censorship, and I, I, I'm kind of on the same page. I know there was some grumblings, I guess, right when Trump was was had the full deactivation, you know, across the board about about like hey, maybe these should be public and we should be enforcing some kind of like freedom on these. So if they go down that road, I'm actually, I'm, I'm there for that maybe. So Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, it, it's, it's up in the air. I mean, um, because a lot of the speeches on the floor during the impeachment, uh, really the vote, it was just one floor debate really, uh, were suge- suggesting, oh, doing this is, is attacking everybody who voted for the president. And they really don't want to do that. Uh, that that is that is not the goal of Democrats is to put everyone who voted for for Trump in jail or to make them feel bad about themselves. I mean they they want to form. I mean, what's their goal here? It's it's form a majority party and not be assassinated. I think those are probably the two basic goals of the week. And Seems so like two good priorities. Yeah, two priorities. And so they're they're that is the thing is is who gets punished for uh, speech in this climate that wouldn't have had before. And, and that's why you're hearing some Democrats. Uh, they've already, you've got a number of Democrats who've co-sponsored legislation to kick out um, a couple of members of Congress who uh, encourage the crowd. Uh, they've already been referring to quote unquote col- uh, collaboration. So, the, so looking into whether members of Congress let their staff participate in the protest, whether um, people were informed of, uh, by members of Congress where to go inside the Capitol, that's the thing to watch. And so that is going to be focused entirely. You might have what is, I think, the definition of, you know, partisanship. Uh, you might have these Republican members in the minority defending themselves against the threat of being expelled um, for what they did before January 6th. Uh, and that would be, I think, very intense and, and very hard fought. But that would be different than we're passing a law that affects 330 million people. Right. I mean, th- these are two things they could be going after. I'm not sure which one comes first. Yeah, I would hope the leaders first. Um, I do agree with that. But let's uh, let's take a little uh, little transition um, to Georgia uh, because you were there uh, in the last days of the both Senate runoffs. But I want to frame it like this because I have a, a question that's sort of tangentially related. Um, I'm not big on like the St- Stacey Abrams praise. Um, I certainly had to give her some props because uh, I mean they won both races, which is completely surprising. Um, but she did a lot of a lot of work there. There's no question about that. Uh, Jamie Harrison, uh, in typical McKinsey fashion, uh, waste wasting 150 million dollars to lose, uh, was promoted to the DNC chair. Uh, a sequence that we call the Democrats. Uh, 
Um, how do you have any 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 um, uh, views on that? I mean, I guess it's not because it is called the Democrats. It's not surprising that that this happened. Um, but yeah, what's your what's your take on that? Yeah, well, that was not surprising. So I think Isaac Dover from uh, the Atlantic talked to Harrison. Gosh, at like the end of November, and he thought he was going to become uh, DNC chair. That the momentum was going that way because uh, who votes who votes on 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 that position? You've got uh, every state party chair. You've got their state your committee members. You've got labor leaders. You've got all these people who knew Jamie Harrison already because he was the state chair of South Carolina and because his his campaign yeah you attract a lot of money so i'm not saying and that's why he deserves it i'm saying that's why he was the front runner nobody else came out and also james clyburn um the congressman from south carolina the minority the majority whip uh played this crucial role in getting tr- uh, biden through the primary right uh which i don't need to go all over him but please please, please don't <laughs> Yeah. It's, um, it's still actually, I mean, it's just starting to, the sting is just starting to leave me. So we don't. Oh, you know. okay. <laughs> well, just the short version that Clyburn endorsed Biden at a key moment. And Biden has given him credit for for saving his campaign, black South Carolina voters saving his campaign. And so this, they were always leaning towards who is James Clyburn like, who is a, uh, a black chairman of the party who can talk to black voters, black voters again. Not that remember the, the party did a little, little bit worse with Latino voters, even though it had a Latino chairman. And so those are the concerns. They were not, who is it who has built the best door-to-door operation and won the best, the best campaign? I think that, you're right, that sort of question would lead you to uh, gosh, Jennifer O'Malley Dillon, who is Biden's campaign manager, would lead you to Stacey Abrams. It would lead you to maybe one of these state party chairs who, who won this year, like the Minnesotans. But no, I mean, they really kind of went for Harrison. And having that giant email list, um, having that ability to kind of go on TV and defend the party... Uh, that's a lot of the job. I mean, you, if when you have the White House, uh, you're going to have every campaign eventually folded into the, you know, the 2024 incumbent campaign. Um, you've got these state parties who are getting better at raising their own money, and they want a chairman who kind of keeps keeps that flowing. That's kind of it. I mean, that, so that's a long way of saying a lot of the things that people talk about when they discuss the, um, when they discuss the, uh, how do I put it? When they discuss the DNC generally, you know, when people say DNC on Twitter, I always kind of wince because I'm like, it doesn't have that much power. It has power um, to set up primary debates, uh, spend money, give money to state parties, but like, it literally can't choose the date of a primary. <laughs> it can't. Uh, it can. It can. It can nudge people into having a uh, primary instead of a caucus, but it and it doesn't even have the power. And these members of the DNC don't even have super delegate power anymore. That's something they keep going after the primary. So it's. It's kind of um, it's a job that I think is matters less than people thought. Even even if they're right that the resume Jamie Harrison immediately brought into this is like a little bit ridiculous compared to who who was able to to win stuff. Yeah, my concern I guess isn't even that they're powerful. Although I would push back and say in in this sort of sequence of events or in this sort of milieu of of politics, the big player was. One of the big players, obviously, Obama stepped up and, and did a, a lot here for Biden. But Clyburn. So if, if Clyburn sort of delivered South Carolina to Biden and also from South Carolina, we get this person. It is sort of a political it, 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 it indicates the political machinations, I think. And it also, as you said, it, although it doesn't have any power and it's sort of just a, a you know, a, 
somebody who can go on TV, defend the party, and sort of get these networks together to, to, to make money. Like, I think that just making that clear, I think, is important to people that the party apparatus isn't, is, is there to do, their goals are a certain thing, and you got to kind of keep them in their, in their lane. Um, I think that's, that's the way I, I sort of look at it, because I think you're right. It, it's not their job. I get that. Um, but there's certainly, there's influence over political, there's influence over other electoral stuff, uh, Clyburn being, Clyburn's move being an example of that. There is, although if you're really immediately concerned about um, what are the causes of the left, I should I, I, over the next two and four years, is is one of them, you know, the 2024 primary, possibly. I mean, that that's you can't control that because Joe Biden could be president, Kamala Harris could be running as an incumbent vice president. Who knows? Uh, what's what's a better plan for before that? It is lobbying Congress for stuff you want, and then what's what's a plan? Maybe a couple weeks, months down the line. It's it's winning primaries and replacing Democrats you don't like with Democrats you do like. And those are not things that the party like running the DNC actually helps you with. Those are things that the the, the successes of the last few years have just been people becoming good local organizers and building a, fi- a national network to raise enough money to be serious. Right. That's the Justice Democrats model, which has been pretty, pretty phenomenally successful. I mean, this is each cycle. They basically replace uh, three to four members of Congress and safe seats with more liberal members who uh, represent just different working class backgrounds. Uh, if that's like that's an important mission, then running the DNC is not that is not really important to that at all. Uh, would it be better if, if you know Nina Turner was running DNC? Well, would you rather have Nina Turner running it or or running for Congress and probably winning? Because that that is going to have an impact. So I think the kind of transformation that the left wants to do on the party is is. It's more about local organizing. And, and I, the final thing I say is look, look at um, Donald Trump. Like Donald Trump did not, uh, when he started running for president, have a friendly Republican National Committee. Remember, it made him sign this, this pledge to not leave the party and run as an independent. Um, it debated internally whether to let him on stage and decided to, and there's a lot of regret now. But he won. He didn't need the party to let him win. Uh, now, he would, would yell about cheating and rigging and stuff in a ways that not every Democrat does. But the mission of electing Donald Trump president did not it did not rely on who was running party structures. He just kind of overwhelmed them with votes. Yeah, no, that's true. I, I think that I think that the context on the right is probably different than the context on the left uh, from a from a grassroots perspective. But, you know, I might be over overthinking it. So. So in Georgia, what I, I'm my first reaction when we knew that they were going to be two runoffs was that I, I didn't see any way the Democrats could win both of those. Now, uh, from November through December, uh, it, the situation in the country, or, or at least in the show that we're all watching with Trump and everything, got much worse. Um, COVID kind of spiked. I think um, the the fact that Loeffler and Purdue both did, like, looks like they did insider trading on it. Um, I think that didn't look great. Um but what were you what, what do you think some of the dynamics were on the ground and what were you hearing from both sides? And were you sort of based on that and being there, were you surprised by the outcome? Yeah, I was there uh, for a good section of the runoff. I came down three times uh, Was there for the first Trump rally, the, the first Democratic appearances. Didn't cover Biden's visit itself because visits, I should say, because uh, we had you know, what's known as pool doing that, where they don't want to cram every reporter in a room. So there's a couple who do it for us. 
But I could see on the ground that Democrats were always in, in pretty good shape. The question was, well, maybe they're going to get 48% of the vote. How do they build on that? Because um, the rule in Georgia had been, not, not the rule, but just what always happened, is if it goes to a runoff, black voters kind of fall asleep, don't go to vote in the whole thing. That's the plan. This is the, this is the plan that the, the reason why there is runoff voting is that historically, uh, the you know, Dixiecrats who ran the process were like, well, the black voters don't pay attention to the second round, so we'll, we'll vote for this one. And so Republicans were very confident going in, but they had this, I mean, since they lost, you could just say, really stupid campaign. Um, they got members. So like, there's this election in November. We heard about it. Uh, Biden wins Georgia by like 12,000 votes. Uh, but Republican candidates run ahead of Trump and do, you know, at least lead down ballot. They get like 51% down ballot, but, um, or sorry, in the, in a, in this one race with Raphael Warnock, there's multiple Republicans. They combine for like 51% of the vote. The Libertarian Republican vote combined in the Ossoff race is 51, 52%. So they're, they think, okay, we're, that's our map. We know what to do and who to turn out. Um, but they ran a campaign to turn out Trump voters again without ever making an argument for their candidates. And it really was incredible if you were there. If you watch TV occasionally, there'd be a TV ad that was just kind of pos- like uh, Herschel Walker, the pro-Trump ex-football player, was would throw a ball off screen and Luffler caught it and then she threw it and Purdue caught it. it just stuff like that. Occasionally, hey, your senators helped pass this COVID relief. Wasn't that good? Wasn't that great? Um, but 90% of the ads were negative and they were an attempt to disqualify Raphael Warnock and say, okay, well, we know this is a Trump electorate. Let's make sure people know that the this one black Democrat is uh, is too far left and hates Israel and loves Fidel Castro. And let's make sure people think the other Democrat is, is pro-communist and has no experience, et cetera. Uh, and so they just ran this brutally negative campaign uh, that was also confounding because why did it matter? Let's let's say Trump had won the election, and well, those races wouldn't matter that much. You know, the if if Democrats won both, but Mike Pence would cast a tie-breaking vote, they'd run the Senate, whatever. Uh, in order for it to be a, a an import, like a impactful election, uh, you needed to assume Biden was going to be president, and and Trump wouldn't let them do that. So Trump wouldn't let them do that, and you had the Republicans embracing Trump, agreeing that the Secretary of State should resign because Trump didn't win, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it was baffling. If you were in the state, just having, you know, both co- voter conversations and conversations, people just kind of paying attention. They just thought the Republicans were nasty. They had no idea what they were for. The, they were being like they were cruel. Trump was crazy. Just everything. Trump got less popular uh, during this this um, this runoff. And so I think the exit the exit polling in the state election day was, I think, 48 percent of Georgians had a f- favorable opinion in the runoff. It was 42 percent. Uh, so the president was just tanking them and they weren't putting a positive message on the side. And then the final thing they ran on uh, was without going into the $2,000, the entire $2,000 just check origin story. Um, the Republicans made it unclear if they were going to um, extend the COVID relief with another $1,400. Democrats ran and said, no, elect us. And you're getting $2,000. That's, that's what's coming. Um, and that message was pretty potent. I mean, Democrats were saying, Here's our positive agenda. We're going to save health care. We're going to give you COVID relief and vaccines. And you're going to get money. And the Republican message was just pure negative. Yeah, I think that pl- I was the, the I noticed that phenomena because I did not think that based on 
the numbers that Biden did or the or the first the, the general election Senate numbers that Ossoff and Warnock could outperform the way they outperformed, which is which to me was indicative of this game Trump was playing, put them in a bind like as he gets less popular and has to say more incoherent stuff uh, and they lose a bunch of lawsuits and the thing is becoming like a national joke. Um, it really they were in a bind. They didn't know what the, they couldn't they couldn't land on anything good other than just sort of yelling. And the num and 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 the, the the improvement that happened for Warnock and Ossoff from the general to the runoff, I thought was uh, really indicative of exactly what you're saying. Yeah, no, what you were seeing was what was happening. You were not missing anything. I remember uh, my second trip down to Georgia. I kind of I I always ask people save your save the mail you're getting. What's your negative mail? And it was just nonstop Republican negativity. And then the the Democratic message was, you know, the their candidates looking looking friendly uh, and a bunch of stuff they were going to pass that they won. And and even in the TV advertising, it's been written a lot that the you know the Democrats knew there had there had never been a black man elected to the Senate from Georgia, uh, any party. So they had to. Um, convince white people that Raphael Warnock was not who de- Republicans said they were. What they did, honestly, is this this campaign where uh, he had a puppy in an ad warning, you know, kind of joking that they're going to say everything about it. They're going to say, hey, puppies. And then he kind of, as the advertising went on, he had this recurring theme of this suburban dad who loved dogs, uh, which was an incredible distraction because one thing he distracted from was uh, he had just gotten divorced during the campaign. He had a, a, a conflict with his wife. The police came. She she said that he uh, had run over her uh, foot with a car. He said in the I think the hospital the the medical examination said that maybe not. But anyway, that was happening. <laughs> so he couldn't run as the family man candidate, and he did a very good job of branding himself. But it only worked because it was combined with. And then if elected, here's a bunch of stuff I'll do for you. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of a bunch of stuff that's going to be done, uh, you mentioned that the two thousand uh, dollar check. But let's just introduce it. We'll talk about, you know, our, our you know, uh, Delaware's favorite almost son, uh, Uncle Joe. Um, you know, and he epitomizes what, what, what Delaware politics is now sort of writ large. Um, you know, a corporate conservative background, you know, sort of slap on the back, Strom Thurmond guy who, you know, did austerity, uh, was a tough on crime. Um, all of that stuff, but but mostly it's transactional, just like it is in Delaware at a small level. You know, all the old good old boys get behind and make a decision. It's kind of how he won the primary, I think. Um, using this new um, controversy about this check, where um, Biden said we're going to get you the two thousand dollar check in Georgia a couple of times, and then so everybody kind of picked up on that. Um, even I think. You know, Pelosi made a move before the general election to kind of like jam them and, 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 and ask for too much so they could jam them up then. And then they run on it in Georgia. And today or was it today or yesterday they came out with the, oh, so you'll get your 1400 hour check because well, 1400 plus the 600 is the 2000. And so, I, I mean, it's pretty I, I think it's pretty nakedly, uh, you know, kind of cynical move. But I, I wonder uh has it been out today and what the what the feedback has been? Have, have you asked anybody about this uh, sort of walking back of the 2000? Well, yeah, it's confusing because it's honestly it's not a walk walked back because of the timing. So uh, what happened was the final bill that ended up becoming law 
had a $600 payment that the Democrats negotiated for, thinking they couldn't get more. The president never said how much he wanted. He gives a speech. He says, I want $2,000, not 600 And there's an attempt for like three days to make that happen. It doesn't happen. But that legislation in the, you know, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez had it uh, in the House, Bernie Sanders Port and Senate, was literally like, take a pen, cross out 600 put in 2000 uh, and so because that bill passed anyway, everyone got $600. And that was this, you know, if, if the if the transition was do, was done on like January 1st, they probably would have just said, okay, well, it already passed. So cancel the check printer, put out new ones that are 2000 Instead, it's, uh, well, the thing we're going to do be, because of the Constitution and this 25-day delay between the vote and the new president, we're just going to add what we said we were going to add back in December. And that's the issue is... Um, so they're not being dis- it's not there are times when they say hey we're in favor of of 100 things no we're in favor of 50 they didn't actually scale the ambition down they just said uh maybe people are still going to be fine with it if we offer them the same thing we offered them a month ago and you're already seeing that people are like well you said 2000 so what are you going to do i'm not sure this is the kind of thing um it depends on who messages it right if if bernie sanders were to get out there and say I said 2000 originally. Now I want, uh, we want uh, 2000 on top of it. Uh, you know, not 1400, 2000. Uh, I think that would have an effect. If Bernie says, guys, just go along with it. <laughs> I, yeah, think, I, mean, I think it the, might pass, but it really is a matter of messaging because in order for people to be angry about like 1400 bucks is, is, is 1400 bucks. Um, in order for people to be really furious and say he broke the promise, you need the kind of party to splinter and say he broke the promise, um, which they could. I mean, like, uh, Look, and they got time right now. There's no threat of an election. There's no there's no downside to pressuring Joe Biden. So people are pressuring and saying, how about another six hundred dollars? And I think they're going to fight for that. The questions. Uh, uh, look, and I think the sequence, I would say this. I, I, I think the sequence, the sequence of events is is what like what you said, because, you know, it, it was going to his desk with six hundred. And then Trump just decides as he as as you do just to cross it out or whatever. The, it, once that was a once that was approved and that I, I think some of the stimulus the checks had gone out or at least the direct deposits had gone out. So now that's a thing. Now in Georgia, you go to Georgia and start harping on harping on two thousand dollar checks. Well, if, if people already got their six hundred dollar direct deposit and then days later you're on the stump talking about two thousand dollar checks, we're going to get you two thousand dollar checks. That's uh, while I think the sequence and the logic that you're saying is right. I don't know how you message your way out of that because the fact of the matter is the, the everybody knew what they were getting and some of them had already gotten it uh, before this, while they're saying another $2,000 check. So again, I think I, I'm not really at, I'm sort of like you are. I'm not like necessarily worried about that little sort of quirk. My issue further is that, Biden continually does the rhetoric of um, we need a good Republican Party. We're not we're not going to do this with uh, 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 unanimous consent. We're going to do it outside of the budgetary thing to try to get it bipartisan. And that that part of it is what you know, now you're saying 14. Are you is this rhetoric to soften us up for more uh, give and take? Uh, Did you not have you not learned any lesson that Perhaps just use the power you have, whatever it is. You have 50 plus one plus the VP. You have three chances in the next two years to do unanimous consent for budget stuff. Just just do it. 
Yeah. Well, you're not you consent, just simple majority. Simple uh, majority. Well, whatever that is. Yeah, whatever the rule is that you can yeah. do for the budget, uh, the simple majority, for the, once a fiscal year, you can do it, I guess. Is that what it is? No, totally. That's what it is. It's, it's, uh, and this is something that Democrats were skittish about using under Obama. They wanted to get six, and they were close to 60. Uh, they only had 60 votes locked in for a couple months, remember, because they had a bunch yeah. of old senators kept getting sick. Uh, but anyway, and Al Franken got blocked by Republic, et cetera, et cetera. But they were saying, okay, well, we're so close to this. Let's just do the 60 um, vote. We can, we'll be, bi we, we can be bipartisan. We can get something to get some of the Republican vote. That's not the approach here. I mean, so actually, if you go back to 2009, uh, this same period of Obama coming into office, uh, the Obama folks were letting it be known, like, boy, we'd love it if the stimulus got 80 votes uh, to really show people that the, the country's, you know, coming together and we're going to fight this, yada, yada, yada. And it, you know, got zero Republican votes in the House and three eventually in the Senate only by making it smaller and Republicans celebrated that they voted against it. So that's not the attitude anymore. I mean, Republicans, when they got power, said, okay, we got this 51 vote thing. We're going to use it to undo Obamacare, pass tax cuts. That radicalized people. Radicalized maybe sound, is kind of a big word for it, but general, like really there are Democrats like uh, Chris Coons, honestly, somebody I've talked to about this. Um, that Chris Coons was not a let's blow, um, blow this up and do something with 50 votes guy in 2016, right? And he is now. Are you sure now? I want you to give me, it's, you're going to, I know uh, you have all the information because sure, you're, sure. In, you're inside, but to, to, and you use the word radicalize, we'll soften it. We'll just say, <laughs> less, we'll say lessons learned. Yeah, that's a good way what, to put it. What, what evidence do you have in speaking uh, with Senator Coons that he has learned his lesson? I mean, I just ask him stuff and say, like, well, now you used to be against this, you're for this. And he's, he's evolved on I me. Mean, he, he used to be against legalized marijuana. He's for it now. Uh, he used to be, you know, against using reconciliation for big stuff, and he's for it now. But he's for it. I mean, I, the way he put it, because um, I was talking to him in September, was it anything that anything they would do with reconciliation, we should do, which is, so let's, we're not going to use reconciliation to do Medicare for all, because you can't do that. But hey, if they spent $2 trillion on a tax cut, we could spend $2 trillion on something. That's kind of his attitude. That's, that's you know, less eloquent than he put it. But um, when you're looking at the, this Biden package, it's, 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 a, it's a good question to ask, right? Because what is the role of the left that you know, doesn't literally work for Joe Biden in America? Is it to say, great job, Joe, we'll, we'll take it? Or is it to constantly pressure him? It's, I think it's obviously to constantly pressure him, right? Um, I'm not telling people to do it. They're already doing it is to say, we, we, and more. So for all we know, this could end with people going to uh, going to the barricades for $2,000. Joe Manchin, who is skittish about doing anything, says, well, gosh, I can settle for 1400 and that wouldn't have happened if you didn't have a protest. I think that's very possible. Uh, I'm just saying, in the rest of the Biden agenda, uh, it's been back and forth, right? So people, a lot of people want to be cynical, uh, which I understand. I mean, Joe Biden was there under Barack Obama, how much did he learn? But the and he gave different messages during the campaign. There's one story I remember um, I followed up on it, but it was the Wall Street Journal had it first where one of Biden's top advisors referred to how when he takes over, the cupboard, the cupboard's going to be bare, um, which people took to mean. Does that mean they're not going to spend money because they're going to pretend that, uh, well, gosh, Trump spent it, so we can't do anything. Uh, that's not been how he's governed. And really, so campaign rhetoric is one thing, but at this point, uh, when you when you put out what you want Congress to pass in your a week before you take over, uh, that really is putting like 
putting your money on on red. Like you 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 can't take that off. You if if you fail anything on the list of stuff he wants, if it fails to pass, it will become famous that he supported it and he didn't pass it. Uh, he does not want to. So if 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 he gets downgraded to uh, a smaller amount of checks, we'll know. If he if he cuts out the fifteen dollar minimum wage, we'll know. If he cuts out any of the vaccine stuff, we'll know. So everything on that list is um, more than some Biden advisors said like three months ago, but also less than Biden would sometimes say on the trail. Like it's hard to tell exactly where he's going to land, but where he landed with this proposal that he wants to, his, this is his mission for the next uh, few weeks is to get this through Congress is a gigantic spending package and a $15 minimum wage and at least $1,400 check. That is, uh, if you were really cynical about Biden in like January, um, your idea was, not, this is not you guys, but people I talked to was, well, Joe Biden, he'll get elected and he can't wait to just, you know, cut a deal with Republicans to cut Social Security. In fairness to Biden, that doesn't, that doesn't seem like where his head's at, right? He, he took two trips to Georgia to campaign for these Democrats. And because they won, he's not proposing deficit reduction. He's, he's saying like, no, things are bad. We need to deficit spend raise people's wages and give them free money. Um, so like that is, an, I think, a, a success for the left and frankly, one that Trump bumbled into, right? I mean, Bernie Sanders is the person uh, urging $2,000 in ch- uh, checks. He's urging them, you know, once a month, but well, settling for 2000. But what uh, the combination of, of Trump throwing a tantrum about it and Republicans having to go along with what Trump says means there's this huge public groundswell for spending a lot of money. And one thing you've seen now, maybe they'll get their 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 ships in order like uh, in the next few days, but Republicans are very good at saying this is bad. The government shouldn't spend all this money, and they're being very bad at that right now because they've justified all this Trump spending. So you've you do not have Tea Party groups mobilizing to stop this money from going out or for the wage from going up. Uh, you have them. I mean, because of this thing, we start the whole conversation talking about you know uh, the the January 6th of, of, of riots because of that Republicans are just in a weaker position. So uh, right now, as we're talking now, who knows what happens? It looks like just Biden processed all that stuff, all of the dynamics, all of the, the, the new strength he gained um, but in, with the Georgia win, all the, all of the clout Republicans lost, you know, thank God that's all they lost on January 6th. Uh, I, and he's acting pretty bold right now. Uh, so let, you know, will he stop acting bold if people don't pressure him? That's a good question because, you know, the classic version of Joe Biden was crime bill Joe Biden. It was deficit commission Joe Biden. It was not this guy. Yeah. I mean, I, as I said, the, the the one thing that I sort of lean back on is, you know, as a as a traditional transactional politician, uh, he will he will be susceptible to pressure, as you said. I, I don't think and we've talked about this on the show before what Obama did um what Obama did to the organizing apparatus that got him elected, which was let it die. Um, we talk about that Obama's lost army uh, piece. Uh, I think it's in the New Republic about two years ago. It's great. Um, but oh, that's not happening. It doesn't look like. And, and because of this sort of riot and, and botched sort of uh, coup attempt, um, it puts the Republicans all on a back foot. They're they're really susceptible to, to, to really taking it. And I and, and I guess, you know, I I do accept the fact that this is a pretty bold right out of the blocks proposal. Carl and I were talking earlier too. Um, some of the local governments here have been able to leverage some of the original care funds they got. 
uh, in pretty decent ways. And this package also has a lot of state funds for unemployment, uh, for COVID stuff, like you said. And so far, at least the the politicians, especially our our county executive, Matt Meyer, has been able to do quite a bit with it. Um, He's setting up for a governor run. Pretty much everybody's sure of it. Um, But when that money sort of comes in, they have been able to apply it in, in pretty decent ways, too. And that's another part of this. I think there's a there's a pretty good chunk of money for sort of um, for for state programs, COVID related and, and otherwise and like that type of thing. So that's something to look to look at. Yeah, I mean, uh, like it's good to not be naive. So uh, I, I think the hard lesson that, that everyone on the left learned after Obama was if you just trust the new president to do the, to do what you want. Uh, you're going to be flat-footed, and if you and if when he tells you to stop pressuring him and you stop, then you're not going to get anything. I and mean, I think the, the the model of organizing that people really got inspired by at, at different at all across the left, the uh, different silos, you know, climate, uh, uh, immigration, guns, everything was really kind of the Dream Act protesters who just never stopped talking and never stopped interrupting Obama from speaking. Uh, protested him like the don't ask, don't tell protesters. Same thing. Like you need to be in people's face. And the, the, the thing that actually was so surreal for conservatives under Trump is that they didn't need to organize. They just need to go on Fox or then eventually on Newsmax or OAN, like stuff Trump was watching and say, you know who Trump should pardon? Uh, this guy. <laughs> or, you know, it'd be a great executive order, this one, and just get it to get it up to him. And that's, I mean, you, you have to understand why he was so popular for conservatives is because they've he just made no political consideration apart from, will this make the people that are saying nice things about me on TV happy? And that is not how Biden operates. So the model of organizing is demands a lot more. And so far, you know, Biden's on the record and he's, so Biden's been on the record for $15 minimum wage for a long time. Uh, I, he said if, if he'd run for president 16, he would have been for it. So this is, you know, the minimum wage doubling would be, I think a big deal. <laughs> it would not be the, the Biden that people worried about, right? And he's going to do that without any pressure. I don't. I, so talk to me in like a month if they they they're trying to get sixty votes so they let it all die and they just give everybody like a check for eighty nine cents. All right, let's if that happens, like I'll revisit this. But I, I'd stick to my first point that like when you say, "Hey, uh, I'm a new president. Our new, our Congress should be passing this bill." That means you want to pass that bill. That doesn't mean like we're we're going to kick it and something that sounds good on CNBC, we're going to pass that. Yeah. So last question, sort of uh, speculative, but again, relying on the work you've done, you mentioned OAN and, you know, sort of other alternative sort of sources for really just conspiracy theories and stuff. Um, Where does this go? Where does this Trumpism sort of go? I mean, people thought it was, you know, reactionary. It's not really conservative necessarily it's not really like the christian right it's something a little it's not it's nothing there's nothing new under the sun but it's certainly an acceleration of sort of this um you know whether it's rural and suburban petite bouge, petite bouge or like the business owners the beautiful boaters you know they they obviously have they obviously have a fire up their ass um where do you see this trumpism going um, whether it's the folks in the Congress that are still there or what will happen in four years with um, the presidential sort of election. Uh, where do you see all this going? Hmm. So it's uh, with the Republican Party, they're figuring out. I honestly was thinking about this most of the day because I uh, 
I, I, I think I'm pretty cynical and that usually helps, helps me out. Like I, uh, I assume that most people in politics are BSing when they talk to you. And I assume that, uh, the, if something sounds like it should happen because you want it to happen, then you should talk to the real people who make a decision on this. So I was pretty good in 2016 in terms of predictions. Cause I, I kept saying, why on earth would Trump not be the nominee? Like who, who cares that, uh, Bill Crystal doesn't like him. Like Republican voters want a angry guy who's going to, um, punish Obama and, you know, build a wall. All the things he's saying are things they want someone to do and he's famous and he's successful. So he'll win. So I was very uh, bullish on him winning, uh, although I was surprised he won versus Hillary. And I, I think, you know, minus the Comey letter, maybe he doesn't, but that, that he kept it that close. The part that I, I, was, I was more surprised by is that he converted so many people, apparently for good, from blue collar Democrat to blue collar Republican. Uh, now, his key votes came from the beautiful voters, right? The, the people who maybe, maybe you just have a high school diploma, maybe you went to state school, you're not um, one of the quote unquote elites. You don't care what's on, you know, the Criterion Collection or whatever. Uh, or you're not, you're not opening a vape, whatever the new cliche for being a liberal is. You're not that, but you're, you know, this is very common in Florida. You make decent money. You live in a cheap place. You can afford a cool lifestyle. Uh, you don't want that taken away. Those people are really crucial to the Trump base. Uh, and they're not going. And I don't think the people who considered him kind of a working class hero for them are, are going. Um, but they're weaker than they were. So a week ago when people were saying, well, who, who, who can lead the party next? Because surely Trump will be 78 and he can't run again. I would say, well, he's going to be a defeated president, but the, he convinced the base that he, he lost in rigging. So he'll just run again and he'll win the nomination. What are you guys talking about? Yeah. I'm a little bit less certain now because I, but it's, it's even more interesting, honestly. A, a, a drama where every Republican kind of had to take a seat and, and see what Trump would do was kind of tedious. A drama where Trump is still by far the most popular person inside the party. I mean, a, a weakened Trump is supported by, you know, 70% of Republicans. No one else has that. Uh, the idea of, of the Nikki Haley's and the uh, Tom Cotton's and the people who've been doing the work introduce themselves and saying, well, I, I supported the good Trump stuff, but not the bad stuff. Uh, I think that is more of a entry card than it was a week ago. Like, uh, I don't think the Dickie Haley plan made a lot of sense before January 6th. I think it makes some sense now. You think that play, you think that plays actually like, I don't have yeah. like the, the pizzazz and the bullshit, but I like the stuff. I mean, it feels not like, for, the, not feels much, like the not pizzazz. It feels like the pizzazz is kind of part of it. Like I, who, yeah. who can re, who can recreate the, uh, you know, the, the show, the comedy routine he would put on and all of that. No, that's that's huge. I, I think I think that I've been very skeptical. I mean, my, one of my other jokes was back. So I guess January, not January, November 2nd, I thought Trump was going to lose more than he they lost by. And I thought, well, a world in which he lost badly. I think Don Jr. is somebody I'd look at more seriously than like Josh Hawley. And I, I, I still do, frankly. Yeah. I, I, I can see people saying I want somebody who isn't and use the word bullshit. I mean, that is a word that's on a lot of Trump flags. I see a lot, and you probably see them when you drive around. I see them when I drive in a, in a redder areas. Uh, you know, Trump 2020, no more bullshit. Um, who else has run on a no more bullshit platform? I mean, does Ted Cruz run on, on no more bullshit? The guy who utterly humiliated himself to get Trump's approval? Does Josh Hawley do it? Does Nikki Haley do it? No, I don't think so at all. 
Um, does Dan Crenshaw do it? I think that's more realistic. But if there's like 10 of these people who think they can do it, then Trump is still in the best position. The difference is there are people in the party, uh, in, in the in the elite donor class who are like, I'm done. This guy can't possibly lead us again. Like, I, I, I think that he will destroy democracy and we can maybe get a president who won't destroy democracy, but he'll still sign our tax cuts. Uh, I don't think the rank and file is ready to move on, but it's weaker than it was. So, I, you know, before January 6th, 90% of Republicans were ready to vote for Trump. If you look at the polling since then, it's more like 40% want to vote for him and 60% think that the election was stolen. Uh, that is a big enough base to win the primary, but that's much weaker when you're saying, after I win this primary, I can win the election. I mean, I, if you reran the election tomorrow with everything Trump's done, I think he loses by 15 points. That's not a great starting position. Uh, but what other Republican can reach to his people? Um, and how? <laughs> finally, how do they balance it? I mean, when Trump says the election was rigged, everyone's like, okay. These guys, like the Josh Hawley's, um, not to keep picking on him. I think his name just is, is, takes the fewest syllables. I mean, he's very easy to pick on. Well, but, but what does he do? Like, what is his argument when, when people, is it that, I sincerely believe that Donald Trump's election was stolen and that's why I fought to overturn it, but not really. And I, once we, once there was a protest, I was, what does he do? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the big, that's the big wild card for me is not, that's the, the big lie was that the election was stolen, that there was the machines and the dominion machines and the, the, the German uh, uh, server and the people in Pennsylvania, dead people, all that bullshit. But but it, until so if people can anybody who told that liar was involved in that, as you said, there's going to be and I think this is the this is the variable. He's been impeached again, but they haven't had a Senate trial. Sure, sure. Uh, there will and he might be, literally be stopped from running from office. That's the, that, that or whatever or whatever the ramifications of this are, along with uh, efforts to per, perhaps expel members from the House who gave people tours the day before or whatever it is. There's a couple House members who are really seem to be off their fucking rocker. So what the, I think, and, and maybe they don't get expelled. Uh, and maybe Trump isn't uh, actually convicted in the Senate or, or, or who knows. But I think, I wonder what you think of, of what could happen in the next couple of months, say first three months that would impact where it goes. Yeah. Because, well, uh, there's so what's the scenario where the Senate, where 15, 17 Republicans vote with every Democrat and say, yes, uh, Donald Trump is banned, uh, is, is, is uh, convicted of what we said he was. Because the process is, after you convict, you only need 51 votes to ban him from office. And I think, well, in a world where 17 Republicans say, we're convicting this guy on the charges from the House, definitely zero. <laughs> when you need zero of them, I think, yes, you can get him banned from ever running again. And that changes things because he he's off the board. I mean, there, once you're, that's it. I mean, he just won't be able to run for anything ever again. What happens to his PAC, uh, which has raised a ton of money? I mean, remember, like uh, the 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 texts people were getting, the emails they were getting, saying please donate to the Georgia Recount Fund. They were all going to the new Trump PAC, which unfortunately, uh, you know, Save America has the same name as the rally that he launched on January six. Uh, you know, that was supposed to be the kickoff of something. I don't think it, it went. It was it, not great. It was kind of Hindenburg level kickoff for what, the, what he's going to do in twenty twenty one. But so what happens if he can't run again? Then you have this this crowd coming in. Who becomes the um, I will stand with mar the martyr Donald Trump and, and enact his agenda? And who says, you know what? All right, we're done with him. Uh, let's enact his agenda, but not with all that extra stuff he did. 
Uh, but I don't think anyone's going to come in and say Trump did it wrong. I'm going to I'm going to be a different kind of conservative who governs in a different way. Um, <laughs> and if they do, it'll probably be on stuff that's not popular. It'll be uh, uh, all right. Unlike Trump, I'm not just going to give you giant checks every once in a while. Well, that was the thing people really liked about Trump. Yeah. <laughs> that's not that's not a thing that plays really well with you know the Cato Institute or the Heritage Foundation. But that's way more popular than anything that those th- think tanks have ever come up with. So. Um, so who does that? Who runs as the I will pick up, I will finish what you started, the Kylo Ren candidate? Uh, I don't know, but um, you're right. That's a thing that we need to that that we need to um, that we need to think about. Like, uh, and we don't know the answer. So if there is a Senate trial where we learn that there was a deep plot to overturn the election, uh, that uh, and remember, because Democrats control the impeachment trial, they're going to control whether there's witnesses. If if you know, Mike Lindell and Rudy Giuliani, there is a scenario here where we're hearing about what happened January 6th for literally months and it ends with a conviction. But there's a scenario where Republicans just say, let's not do this. And six months from now, Donald Trump, you know, is a limited figure trying to get back on Twitter, but still the major leader within the party. My pillow guy, 2024. I mean, that could be. He was in the White House today, I heard. Oh, oh, he was. And he was in the White House uh, based on the Washington Post, fo- and I didn't take this photo. I'm just giving us credit. <laughs> based on the Washington Post photo zoomed in to what he was holding, uh, holding a document, uh, among other things, urging the president to use the Insurrection Act to declare martial law and stop the election results. So we're still doing it. We got a couple. Yeah. We got a couple hours left. We're still doing it. Well, the one the one thing about this stuff is I do think because I read um, Rick Perlstein gave an interview to the New Yorker yesterday or two days ago about the uh, Ford's pardon of Nixon. And and I th- I'm hoping that based on what we talked about with Biden before, where he seems to be going, what's happening within the Senate. I mean, there's going to be some Senate trial going on. I mean, Nixon was pardoned within a month. I I, I don't see that being an option. But I don't know what do you what do you think about that? Uh, the only way that Trump gets pardoned, uh, there's two. One, he pardons himself, and that holds up in court, which is questionable. Two, he resigns, and Trump and Pence pardons him. There is no universe in which Joe Biden pardons him. Uh, and I think it would be dangerous to do so. Uh, it was dangerous before January 6th. It's dangerous now because you'd say, you'd literally be saying, you can try to overthrow the Capitol and get people killed and it's all good because we don't want to we don't want to dig into it and make the country feel divided. Uh, you can tell when people just don't have a winning hand. You know, when, when I see this a lot, like the dying days of a, of a campaign when they're down to like 2%. They're like, well, we just, if we... If we win a big enough margin in Howard County, you know, I've seen when people are flailing and Republicans are absolutely flailing when they're demanding we just unify, we stop division. It's because they don't know what to say. Right. Well, Dave, thank you very much for joining us. I very much appreciate it. I uh, loved having you on, especially to mark this uh, this great date in Delaware history, I guess. That's right. Uh, yeah, we, there we go. Everybody, uh, Capriotis for everybody. Capriotis for everybody. We'll do a couple shots at the Jackson Inn, and uh, and then we'll just uh, that that'll be that'll be that. Uh, well, thank you very much. You know where to find Dave's stuff. I don't have to. I don't have to uh, sell Dave's stuff. It sells itself. Uh, Washington Post. His his Twitter feed is legendary. Everybody knows that. If you want a good take on uh, like Jethro Tull or Emerson Lake and Palmer, that's where you go. Um, and for our stuff, it's at Highlands Bunker. Uh, and patreon.com slash the highlands bunker uh thanks again dave appreciate it well thanks guys i appreciate this i'll let you guys go yeah thanks a lot much appreciated take it easy and i'll just give one of these left is best